Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. Nerdapalooza, the world's largest nerd music festival, and with the generous support of listeners like you. For more Nerdy Show podcasts, community forums, and learn how you can support this and other fine Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Hi, this is Bob Burton, creator of Flaming Carrot, Mystery Men, and also a hair club president, and you are listening to Nerdy Show. I don't always drink Dos Equis, but when I do, I drink it with skeletons. <laughs> Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom. From comics and video games to science and technology, if it's geeky, we've got it covered. And this is a Nerdy Show microsode. That means that we're going to talk about what you want us to talk about for about 15 minutes, maybe longer if we really like it. Hi, I'm Cap. Hi, I'm Josh. Hey, I'm Doug. This episode was requested by Gundam King, and it's on the state of the film industry. And man... Dude, what a heavy topic you have picked. It's, you know, it's, I suppose it's a little lighthearted, but I mean... Also, it's a little depressing. It, it's a dirty... Yeah. I think it's uplifting. <laughs> I think at its heart, it's a romance story. <laughs> it's a dirty, dangerous place slumming it on the streets of Hollywood. In a world that has turned slummy. <laughs> Three podcasting people will discuss. I, I, guess, I guess what we should do to sort of prime everybody for this discussion is uh, just a very brief... Background. Uh, yeah, background on us. I think we in this room have all are or have considered being filmmakers to some degree mm-hmm. in this room. It's something that I was like all through high school and early college was uh, shifting towards, but I've since uh, moved down a different track. Maybe someday I've got lofty ideas, but I'm not going to you know, hold my breath. Mm-hmm. Different story with you guys, though. Yeah, I am holding my breath. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like holding my breath and taking a plunge. Is really what is. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I went to high school, went to college to be a filmmaker, and I was surprised that after getting out of college, they don't just give you the job with the resume saying I went to college to be a filmmaker. So um, there's that whole reality of it, but currently I'm in the similar boat as Josh, where you know we're writing scripts and doing what we can to bust in. But yeah, Josh, what was how what was your background? Oh, I went to I went to high school, college, and uh, studied writing, literary theory. Way more focused on writing prose than screenplays and stuff. But then uh, Doug uh, wanted to get into writing screenplays, and we thought, hey, what's what do, what can we do? Can we can we bang out a script? that's yeah. saleable you know like legitimately and good in a, in a short amount of time the answer is no yeah it turns out writing a screenplay is a lot harder well it's only hard well, if you want to do a good one it's hard if you want to do a good one and you have a full-time job if you both have full-time jobs otherwise yeah, yeah. so so that's the problem but we wrote a script and we like it and what going down the final tweaks on our third draft we're actually going to take the plunge yeah we're gonna try um, to sell we're gonna really try hard to sell it. exactly and then and then after that we've we've got a couple others planned we're working on another one at the same time 
I'm writing a 30-page uh, short film script, and um, as far as film goes, that's pretty much it. I guess the re- the reality of it is that, you know, we're not podcasting from uh, Hollywood or anywhere on the West Coast. We're podcasting from Orlando, Florida, which, though, right. at one time Huge during the 90s, it was a hotbed for film activity that totally dried up. So that's not the playing field anymore, and our perspective is based on things we've seen, people we know, and uh, the rumors that we as press people in and around media with lots of friends who are actually active in the industry, Mm. things we know about how shit is over there. Well, now that you know the background on all of us, that's where we're our starting point. Right. So it's like, so now we can kind of launch into it. On the topic of Orlando being the new hotbed of the film industry, former hotbed, the former hotbed of, of, of the film industry. Uh, people were using the phrase "New Hollywood" a lot. Mm-hmm. There I know is so, actually a Hollywood, Florida. There is for a Hollywood, Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. It's very nice, <laughs> but it's not what you think it is. No. <laughs> because it's nice, because it's not the Hollywood. In <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's the difference. Is that it's nice because there's, there's no film. It is a bit failures. slummy at parts, but I kind of like it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Anywho, good thrift uh, stores. One of the reasons that's like why Universal Studios is here, they have actual sound stages where they actually shoot real things. And, you know, at Hollywood Studios of Disney, it was MGM Studios they were using to shoot real things. One of the theories I've heard as to why they are not shooting more movies here because they were trying very hard in the 90s because it was... I don't know, maybe the tax of the land. I don't know, whatever whatever the incentives was. There were better tax incentives back mm-hmm. then. All of them are not intact to this day. So there's mm-hmm. that. I heard that one of the biggest reasons why it ended up not working out is because of the weather. Because if you are shooting an exterior scene for a feature film, every minute is costing a lot of money. If you're in California and it, you know, this cliche is it never rains, you know, you can go outside and, you know, the cliche and the goddamn truth. Yeah. yeah you know, so, true. so it, it never, it never rains in California. You can go outside, you can shoot and it can be any time of the year. It can be any whatever. And you're not going to get rained out in Florida. If you're trying to shoot on location and we learned this the hard way when we were shooting a feature film, yep. we're outside and we set everything right. You know, the levels are good. You know, everything's looking good. We, the sound is fine. The lighting is great. Let's roll. You start rolling. And not a rain cloud, but just a cloud just comes into the <laughs> shot and just completely fucks up what you've been doing. You've been measuring for the light for this one shot. And you're like, fuck, we got to scrap that shot. The performance was great. Well, you know, at least we're on tape. We're on digital. So, you know, we're not wasting film, but you just wasted, you know, 10 minutes. Now you got to redo it. And, and, you know, oh, and, no, and, now a rain cloud is coming. You're going to get rained out. Now you're fucked. For the and whole Hollywood day. production, it doesn't matter. Like the film's not the most expensive part. Oh, no, no. But <laughs> it's you, having but yeah, the people yeah. stick around. But so... The weather was a problem, which caused a money problem, which caused a reliability problem, which means, well, shit, and, why do I need to fly out to Florida when I can just drive downtown and shoot on the old sound stages there? And that's kind of the fun reason that it didn't work and definitely right, a true right. one. The other reason, which is considerably less fun and deals with how the industry's kind of fucked, is the fact that this is something I heard, which may be not particularly true, but I don't know. We'll play we'll it. We'll figure it out. Um, is that they couldn't convince enough Hollywood film lawyers to actually move to Florida to establish the infrastructure, the legal infrastructure that Florida needed to maintain its Hollywood of the East status. That could be true too. Yeah. It could be true, but if there's something I know about lawyers is that if you have something that is under contention, they will appear. Like yeah, they'll they, go. They, they'll, they'll, they'll come follow out of the money. They'll come out of the ground. Like you don't need the ones from from California. You, new ones will appear. Like yeah, yeah. But but that may be true. I, I don't know. Maybe they only trust their entertainment lawyers. Maybe it was a mixture of a lot of stuff. But either way, that's why it never really came to Orlando. But how, this ain't state of the uh, film industry in Orlando. This right. is, you know, nationwide or whatever. That said, it is blossoming over in Louisiana largely because they have some kick-ass tax breaks over they there. They do. Well, because they're rebuilding a fucking city they, that was they're, destroyed. They're, they're, they're moving well, pretty It actually hard for started it. before Katrina. That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. They're pushing pretty hard for it in Hawaii right now. Yeah. Which would be 
Awesome. I haven't heard. I heard they're actually trying to open up a studio in Hawaii Mm -hmm. with a sound stage and with an animation department. Yeah, they're trying to. I think there's a couple animation companies that are actually vying to be an animation department. What was the animation company that did the Final Fantasy film? Square something. Well, well, I mean, Square. They own Square created Final Fantasy. They started their own animation department to create the film. I may be wrong, but I think when they made the film, that animation studio was based in Hawaii at the time. That I would think make a lot you're of right, sense, actually. It's, it's, it's closer to Japan. Between yeah, Japan. Yeah. They did that and what, Advent Children and then some uh, and the, the, the Animatrix. And the Animatrix, you're right. Mm-hmm. Anywho, so how do we feel about the current state? You know, I think a lot of people would agree, a lot of moviegoers would agree that it's California. Uh, yeah. Well, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking <laughs> know, about the location, but just like the, the current temperature of the quality of work that we're getting is kind of. Uh, uh, we're seeing a lot of shitty bag. movies. Yeah. A lot of very expensive, very shitty movies. I, I, now, I was actually just talking to uh, my good friend Blake, who's one of the Ghostbusters from season one. Uh, we were talking about this, and Blake's like one of my greatest friends of all time, and he has a somewhat cynical outlook on the state of the film industry. Mm hmm. He's got that point of view, and I'm kind of an optimist to a fault sometimes, even just, even though I may joke otherwise. We were discussing, you know, why are there so many shitty things, and because no one's caring, and where are the great filmmakers? Like, where's the next Scorsese? Where's the next Hitchcock? Where's the next, you know, uh, anything? There's no person out there right now that's supposed to be like top of their game an amazing filmmaker who wasn't already an amazing filmmaker in the 80s or the 70s. Uh, I would argue Aronofsky. Um, Aronofsky, in, in, yeah. in the in the 90s is more current yeah uh, he, but he's nowhere near as like prolific or as groundbreaking where, where are the visionaries that kids and young filmmakers are going to look up to yeah you know yeah where, so where are the astronauts you know yeah well and then i i oh, said oh um alfonso, alfonso Cuaron. Cuaron. yeah <laughs> no, he's good, but he's not very prolific either like uh, you know i was talking with a bunch of friends and we were talking about good filmmakers today like for example we're talking about good thriller and suspense films and we were discussing oh you know Christopher Nolan Inception is like very, you know, it's like a very great movie movie. And then there's like Insomnia, Memento and like all these things. He does these things even outside of the Batman movies. Yeah, he's it's a good quality filmmaker. He, he's done. He's done a lot of good stuff. And then you got like David Fincher. Mm-hmm. You know, he's done a lot of good stuff. You know, like this is really good. Dude, none of them even come close to someone like Alfred Hitchcock. Like and I, I'm not talking about no, I'm, no, not, right, I'm not right, talking right. about quality. I just mean quantity. Even Alfred Hitchcock. Prolific. In, yeah, dude, he's made 50 great films just when he came to Hollywood, not even including when he was still in England. I mean, William Goldman, the reason that it would take so long is because everything's so fucking expensive now. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, I mean, verbatim what yeah. he said. Th- things were expensive back then, too. But, like, uh, there's this documentary, and it was a book, I think it was a book then, it was a documentary, called Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Mm-hmm. And it talks about the state of the film industry, like, in the 60s. <laughs> like, I'm sure all the Star Wars fans out there might know a lot about how Star Wars came about at a time when Vietnam and things mm. were bad and blah, 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 blah. Then this great thing, Star Wars, comes out. It wasn't just that the people wanted a, a very positive thing. It was also that the film industry itself was kind of collapsing. Large studios were going bankrupt because of, like, large disaster films and just, like, really gimmicky shit. That Like, the, the 3D in the 1950s was, like, a big contributor. And, like, all, all of these things... It, it, the film industry started to tank and then suddenly the blockbuster is invented. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, a whole new generation where you, it's kind of the director is God in that sense. And so let's just get these young filmmakers out of college, give them a ton of money. So no longer are the studio heads in charge of making creative decisions. It's more of the directors and even less so the writers. And now, of course, there's examples of it being the opposite way. There's, there's always it, it's a mixture. History is never and- that clear. And this is an interesting cycle that happens to a lot of creative industries. The same thing happened with comic books in, say, the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. When they prioritized creators like Grant Morrison and and Alan Moore and so on and let them have their way. And then, of course, as as we're seeing right now in the film industry and in the comic industry and the recent past, 
sooner or later the studios take over again or they they right. find ways to put their stooges in charge cough michael bay as stooges corporate stooges i mean well, he, he yeah, gets to yeah. do what he wants but he's not a mm-hmm. visionary for fuck's sake yeah now the interesting thing when i was talking to blake and he's like yeah that's you know whatever yeah but you know like that's the past and things are different like yeah but the thing the reason why things are sucking now some people would draw the comparison like oh there was disaster films back then like the poseidon adventure and towering inferno and they were all like kitschy sort of popcorny films that people were tired of them i'm like dude but we get day after tomorrow we get 2012 mm. it's history's kind of repeating itself even in like the 90s they had this this fall off of disaster films like uh volcano and like yeah terrible yeah terrible ones that now happen in a row now here because i'm i feel i'm split on how i feel because on one hand i'm like yeah history's repeating itself does that mean something good is on the horizon are they going to lose so much money that they're eventually going to start uh taking bigger risks and therefore the risks like star wars because star wars was a risk for them at the time yeah and it paid off you know like star wars there's nothing else you can compare it to same thing for Jaws, you know, like whatever. So, so like huge risks, big payoff, reinvigorates the whole industry. They're thinking about things differently. What's that next big thing or whatever? And is it even going to happen? Because it seems like now, you know, like there was an article about Spielberg and Lucas talking about how they think Hollywood's on the verge of collapse because if there's three flops in a row for one studio, that's going to be it. It can bankrupt the studio now. now but the, here's the thing. Maybe that was true in the 70s or the 80s, but not really anymore because most studios have a corporate parent that is so huge it'll never go bankrupt it's true like nbc first of all universal studios it's really nbc universal mm-hmm. nbc universal is actually owned by ge is ge gonna go bankrupt anytime soon general electric owns those guys yes whoa yes so universal the amount of money that universal makes per year profit per year on any of their films is let's just i'm just gonna make up a number this is a fake number Let's just say it's $500 million. Let's say the profit for one year is $500 million. Compared to what GE makes in a year, that's a drop in the bucket. Universal could make flop after flop after flop for the next 10 years, and GE won't give a shit. Because the amount of money they're expecting to make off Universal is nothing. I think that's the problem. There is no incentive for Universal to take a risk. Now, I'm bashing Universal, but this is true for all of the major film studios. There's really no incentive to take a risk and have it pay off in a huge way. Like, you can take a risk like, well, are we going to risk making a Harry Potter sequel if there's no book created? Like, no, no, no. It's like there's there's so many sequels that are being churned out because they're sure bets. The people who work at these studios, they want to make good films and they want to keep their jobs. You do that by making like, well, how can we guarantee a hit? You really can't guarantee a hit. Well, we can kind of manufacture a hit if we get the right people involved, get the right buzz going, get the right advertising going. And then by the time the film comes out, if it costs, say, $80 million to make, if it's like a comedy and it costs like 80 to $100 million to make, if in that opening weekend we can make 60 to $80 million opening, we know within two weeks we're going to make our money back, maybe a little plus on top, and that's all we really need. So everything you're, you're saying is legit. You know, It's a very convoluted industry, and uh, it plays to what's kind of confusing about capitalism and the machine of capitalism and how it exists because we believe it to exist. And Mm -hmm. so it just keeps eating its own tail. Well, here's a good Um, example from the early nineties. That's something that's near and dear to my heart, which is Ghostbusters two, right? Ghostbusters came out the first one, huge hit, mega hit, you know, whatever. Ever since then, people were talking about Ghostbusters two, just like, Oh, we want Ghostbusters Ghostbusters two. They didn't really know what they wanted to do. Bill Murray wasn't really that interested. The guy who was in charge of Columbia at the time wasn't that interested either for various reasons. The heads of studios change like all the time. It's like a revolving door. There's a guy who came into Columbia at the time who didn't want to do any of the big, you know, Hollywood stuff. He wanted to do like real human drama and stuff. So he did a lot of like smaller films. 
that weren't big commercial successes. So he was fired. Then at that time, Coca-Cola bought out Columbia Pictures. So Coca-Cola puts in a guy who's now in charge, who for all intents and purposes, doesn't have to know anything about the movie industry. And he's like, okay, Ghostbusters was a huge hit sequel now. And they put it on fast track. And then they just throw enough money at it that Bill Murray has to say yes, and they make Ghostbusters 2. Now, I like Ghostbusters 2. I like it too. It's a good sequel. It's just not as good as the first, but, you know, whatever. That's a whole other podcast. I think that same exact scenario is happening today, but with people who care less about the quality of the film and more about, I want to keep my job as a studio head executive. I got to make a profit in order to do that, because if I don't make a profit, the corporate guys on top of me are going to say, you're not feeding the machine. We'll find someone who does. And the problem, too, is that the, they're getting all these uh, guesses about, oh, you can't do this or you can't do this. You know, never kill the dog. You know, yeah, they, yeah, they never yeah. do this. And they're all bullshit. Like, it's, kick it's, ass, too. It, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's all bullshit rules that everybody makes up because they think they understand the system. And, and, and to understand the system, you really just have to understand what entertains people. That's it. You're speaking like an optimist <laughs> because the system that we're talking about is not how to make a good movie. It's how to make money. Correct. But they are one in the same. It, it, no, it doesn't seem that way. But if you want to continually make money, you have to make good things. <laughs> like, no, I, I, no, I agree. I agree. Because if you make a bad thing to shit it out, you make it you make a shitty sequel. But it still makes money. It, no, the sequel makes money. But you're not going to release a third one. <laughs> like, it, Do people, I need to tell you about the Alan and the Chipmunks movies? Well, that's that's all right. Or Smurfs. Fair enough. Or any of that shit. But, but, but are those objectively bad for children? I wouldn't be qualified to answer that. I, I see. I don't know. So I don't know so, either. I have no idea. But, yeah, but if, if the kids well, want to see him again, I mean, you're not worried about whether or not. The but parents when I was enjoy a kid, when I when I was a kid, I would watch shitty TV shows all the time just because it was a cartoon that was on TV. Not mm-hmm. even because I genuinely liked it. I would just watch everything but Saved by the Bell. <laughs> see, but here's the th- here's the thing about family films. If you can get a kid to see the Smurfs trailer and a Smurf makes a fart and the kid laughs and says he wants to see it, boom! Automatically, at least two tickets are sold because sure. you have to have a parent take a kid. So these are commercial hits, not even because parents even like them. But if a parent is like, oh, God, I want my kid to shut up for two hours. I'm in the mall. I'm tired. Let me I want to sit down in the dark in the air condition, maybe drink a soda. I feel like how spending about we swing dollars. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, how about how about we swing into a movie theater and uh, I can just relax and the kid can watch whatever Smurf is on the movie screen and I can just have a mini vacation for two hours. And that's fine. Like that's I have no problem with that. But I think that type of stuff is giving stuff like the Smurfs and Alvin and the Chipmunks and all that stuff this feeling of a huge success, so the movie companies are going to keep on it's churning true. them out. But, but the ones that are done better make more money, like uh, uh, Despicable Me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, How to Train Your Dragon. Like These right. movies are, are bigger commercial successes because right. they are objectively better. But there's no incentive to try that much harder when it's easy just to sort of skim across the surface. Because and I'm not trying to say people in Hollywood are evil and the executives are stupid or anything like that. People just want to keep their jobs. Well, here's the thing, though. There is incentive in the sense that there's a huge amount of competition, even if it's just perceived, because it's not real competition. The movie's going to do however it's going to do. Unless you're talking about opening weekend, people are only going to see however many movies on this mm-hmm. opening weekend. But we're talking about movies that are getting made, like physically being made at the time. There's a competition to try to do better than so-and-so so your job is justified. Because if you all do bad, but one of you does better, even if it's not great, you're saying, hey, I, I was in a bad market here, right. and I'm doing, I'm doing better than my peers. And then you'll keep your job. I think part of this discussion is going to, like the shitty movies, is that a lot of people believe that movies are now just written by the numbers. And that goes all the way back to, like, there's all these screenplay writers. And that- but before you even go there, it's like, not, see, here's the thing. You're, you're talking about shitty movie after shitty movie after shitty movie. 
And you're saying, well, why don't they just try a little bit harder to make a good film? Well, there's people out there who probably genuinely want to make good films, but they want to take a risk. But the people who are in charge of the money are saying, no, 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 no. If you take too big of a risk, you're going to alienate some people. We got to get as many people in here as possible. So for you to be creatively risky or to make a good film or to do something different, like you're saying, it's difficult to convince somebody to give you the money to try something different when they know if they don't try something different and go with a formula that can at least make the money back and a little bit and some, that's the safe bet. But the risky bet is to try to make something different and unique that feasibly, if you take a bigger risk and make it different enough, it could be a blockbuster or it's a major stinker and it never makes its I'm going to use a weird example. Like look at Boondock Saints. Boondock Saints was an indie movie and a balls to the wall film where they did a lot of stuff that if that movie had been fast-tracked through Hollywood with the right people attached to it, you just wouldn't have seen. You wouldn't have seen Willem Dafoe as a cross-dressing gay police officer, detective or whatever he was. Right, right. You maybe wouldn't have seen as much violence. Whereas, like, Kick-Ass 2, which, you know, came out recently, like, I liked it, but there was a bunch of stuff that didn't happen from the comic book that was not the stuff that was cut for budget reasons, not the stuff that was cut for other reasons. I'm talking about, like, things that were simply not featured in the film and maybe even never considered to be featured in the film because they broke some of those rules of like safe filmmaking, even though it's a rated R movie made for people going, oh my God, can you believe that fucked up shit? They chose to do like toilet humor instead of certain decapitations or a rape or which ties into destruction to New York City and a terrorist nature. Right. Right. You see, because that's the film industry. But if you go to, if you take that thing to HBO, like Game of Thrones. Right. Different story. That's why TV is supposed to be like in this golden age now. As opposed to the film or whatever. The thing, too, is the exact things you're talking about make me so worried about the Ender's Game movie. <laughs> because because I can't I can't believe that well, Harrison I mean, Ford would sign on to a movie that had this kind of content. He seems like he's just making movies right now. He's like, I wasn't making them for a while, and now I'm making them. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think... Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he's being too discerning. I mean, hey, the cast for Cowboys vs. Aliens was great, as was the cinematography and a lot of other things, but the script was terrible. So um, because it was manufactured to be a Hollywood blockbuster, it was because like I read uh, I read a lot of the comic and the comic. This is a lot of differences from the comic. And well, the, 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 the comic, the out. comic was actually a, a point of scandal because the comic was printed solely so it could be sold as a film. Oh, that and, makes sense. And okay. in fact, they I think to get their sales up, they bought their own book to make it look like it was hot. Oh, that's fucking. And so they, they actually created a new policy through Diamond Distributors to make sure it never happened again. Wow. See, here's the thing, though. A lot of time people will say, oh, this movie sucked because the script was bad. We didn't read the first draft. Like, we don't we have no we idea. We read the shooting draft. How the, the, the movie yeah. you shoot with the shooting draft of the script can get cut out in the editing room. Dude, perfect example. I, I am legend with, with Will Smith. I went to see the movie. It was good. I had fun. I walked up the movie going, man, that ending was kind of weird. Turns out that wasn't the original ending. Like, there's the alternate ending. Maybe someone has the DVD, the alternate ending. Yeah. There may be several alternate endings. Or I, I, all I know is... You're talking about the one with the blood butterfly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and, and I won't go into too much detail. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Because if you need to see the movie, just see the movie. But there's an alternate ending that I think is way better than the one that they showed in theaters. And I'm like, why in the world did they change it? Well, because there was a test screening and some people didn't like the original ending. And then that test audience doesn't like the original ending. They say, we got to rewrite an ending that is more whatever. So then that's what the general public gets. I'm like, but that original ending was trying to say something that you were establishing throughout the entire movie. But the new ending doesn't even acknowledge that thread. The, the plot thread being the vampire monsters that are running around. They're maybe, just monsters. Maybe they're, it didn't they're, test well, Doug. Yeah, they're, they're, I, they're, brainless, they're brainless monsters. They have no heart. They have no soul. They're just fucking monsters. And the original ending presupposes this idea of, no, maybe there's a little bit of humanity left in them. It makes me wonder how One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest ending tested. I don't think it did test. They probably, they probably didn't worry about that shit <laughs> yeah. because it was already like, that's the other thing. If you were to make one flew over the cuckoo's nest today, it'd be like, oh, well, you know, it's based on a successful play. So it made whatever, it, it you would know. be a lifetime movie and it would be very uplifting. Well, to yeah, be fair, yeah. at the time they went, hey, you know what? Um, uh, we got a movie about a guy who goes into a nut house fakes me who, who pretends to be crazy. crazy and we got jack nicholson the movie yeah. it doesn't we could we could have him shit unicorns at the end and yeah, it wouldn't yeah. matter <laughs> people will see this movie <laughs> but this goes into the thing where you're saying that like about it being formulaic yeah kind of paint by numbers and it, it's a lot of people are being are accusing it of that and i think, I think in some cases it is true in some cases it's true but i think a lot of that comes down to post-production or even pre-production like you've got something that's very much not by the numbers and the further it goes along and the more money that gets spent people are starting to go hmm i yeah, don't know there's the movie there's the movie you write there's the movie you shoot and then there's the movie you edit right exactly. and there's just so much waste in hollywood i'm talking like insane amounts of waste okay you're, you're making a multi-million dollar picture here right so mm. you got to spend all this money that entitles directors to be lazy, not appear on set, have somebody else direct the movie for them, but still get to put their name on it because they're in a special club that lets them put their name on it. And therefore, if they don't like something and someone screws something up, they could spend thousands, maybe even millions of dollars, say, shooting one place because of a favor that someone did for something else gets kind of like mafia rules about, you know, scratching someone's back. And all of a sudden, you know, you're faking a uh, tropical beach somewhere that doesn't need to be one. You're flying in trees from another place. And uh, and then those trees die and you have to manufacture fake trees from China and then delay shooting and, and then exactly. cost more money. It, this, this, you know, it just comes down to my philosophy on it is that if there's too many cooks in the kitchen, you're going to dilute the product. So if you have a producer who's too involved or if you have uh, an executive who's too involved and they all have their say, they're all good. Everybody wants to make the best movie possible in theory. You know, in theory, every, nobody wants to make a flop unless it's Mel Brooks, the producers. You know, it's like, yeah. that, that, but that's a fictional, fun little story. But, but uh, if everyone's trying to make the best movie possible, everybody has different opinions. Everybody has, oh, I, I control more money. Therefore, I have more say. You're going to dilute the final product. It's going to be something that's soft edges you know there's nothing deep or excessive about it or or exciting or whatever at the the end of the day you can never count on big hollywood to be making a film that is going to be memorable and treasured it's if it happens then lucky you yeah and lucky everybody involved right but the special films unless by a fluke because the industry is simply not what it was in the the mid late 70s it's just not going to happen and what's more the entire paradigm of the entertainment industry is completely shifting. Speaking from a futurist slant, uh, what Lucas and Spielberg were saying, in the future, you're going to have to spend $60 to go see a film, and it's going to be a special... I don't know if you're... I don't know. Maybe you're going to... Maybe that'll be maybe, a subgenre maybe seeing, maybe seeing a movie in a theater is going to be like going to the opera. Maybe that's going to happen, because the fact is that everything is shifting, 
and technology is changing. And sooner or later, we are going to see virtual environments and so on that will be more immersive. And ultimately, it's going to be who's the best storyteller. It's always going to go back to that. And when will the equipment to make a convincing, realistic story in whatever medium, be it film or television or some kind of full immersion technology, if that power gets to the people, which it's likely to because of just how technology is shifting and what any of us in this room are capable of doing thanks to the big changes in technology within the last decade, never mind the last two decades, ultimately the power is always only going to be in our hands. And if we want to make something big, well... It's a pipe dream because the guy who did Tron Legacy, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, he was nobody. He was absolutely nobody. And he filmed out of pocket his own pitch for Tron. This is a very abbreviated version of the story, mm-hmm. but you know, he pitched Tron to Disney and they said, We don't know you, pal, but my God, you got balls and this looks great. You got a shot, kid. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's one guy. And right. then, they were, a, then they wrote it as they went along. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the, that's the thing. So, like, let's just, you know, every, they're like, Spielberg and Lucas have also like, oh, man, I wish I was making films today because you, you the technology makes it so easy or whatever. It's so different or whatever. It's like, if we gave everyone in the United States a film crew, like the equivalent, if this, if this was like 20 years in the future and you could make a, you know, a, a Hollywood quality film by yourself with a computer that can automatically render all these things to make it look amazing, that doesn't mean we're going to have a million Martin Scorsese's. It means we're going to have a million really fucking shitty films. Right. And maybe one guy accidentally makes a masterpiece. Because I wouldn't say it's accidentally. You or, have a guy out there or, who's, yeah, one who guy, has an easier time making yeah, a masterpiece. Or, or one yeah. guy works really, really hard and he, and he struggles and he makes a masterpiece. Here's the thing, though. I, I think it, it already is kind of shifting because uh, a lot of people in Hollywood are starting to realize that there's some directors out there that can pull in talent for very little money. Right. And turn a huge profit like, uh, like Aronofsky made Black Swan on you know piecemeal budget right and it did fantastic i mean it did very well won awards it was awesome but it's not the avengers it's not the avengers but everybody says oh well the avengers made more money and that's fine but for <laughs> you can't make that, that's a special situation that has only ever existed once so far yeah. hollywood doesn't give a shit you can't, though. <laughs> you can't make you, you can't, gotta you can't afford to make five avengers a year with one studio you could make 50 black swans you know right but right as long as it was good and the thing is they invested in good talent and he says, hey, the whole pitch of Black Swan was that it was going to be really inexpensive. It was all going to be handheld. It was all going to be from one person's viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And, and if, a, if a director who's known to be able to, to turn that kind of things gets in contact with good actors and things like that, people will see it. That's that's all there is to it. I mean, if, if it's good, people will people will know. Uh, again, tying into the idea of the formula. What was the article that was making the rounds? It was called Save the Movie, the 2005 screenwriting book that's taken over Hollywood and made every movie feel the same. Right. That article was like an attack on the series of books called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder, which is a screenwriting help book of, you know, hey, if you're, you know, if you want to write a screenplay, try this or whatever. Or like if you're having trouble, if you don't know how to, if you don't know how to start, here's a good starting point. Which, you know, um, in the books, in the Save the Cat books, it lines out uh, 15 beats. Your movie needs to ha- have these beats. It needs to happen between pages one and five. This needs to happen between pages 10 and 20. This needs to happen. So on and so on and so on. And uh, this article was criticizing that just being like, that's why movies are formulaic, because they'll take this thing and it literally gives you the formula, literally, of the page count, the page number, what to do on what page. Boom, you have a movie. And while I guess that's true, one, that's not the aim of the book, which, you know, uh, th- that's a whole other thing altogether. I don't think a lot of, quote unquote, Hollywood insiders 
really care about what one guy wrote in one screenwriting book. They don't. I don't, I don't think there's. Any, I don't think movie executives have the book in their drawer at their desk and like you know like the movie The Player or whatever. It's like oh some guy comes in pitches a story. He's gonna hand him. You need to read this book by a guy who once wrote blank check. And therefore, follow his instructions and we'll make an instant hit. Do you think they, uh, after Joss Whedon pitched them the Avengers and, and handed them the first draft? Did they in return they, they, hand they, they him went, save the cat? They went, yeah. you know, on page five, we don't really have an initializing action here. Yeah, so I we think don't, we, yeah. need, like, Tony Stark needs to save the cat here. <laughs> what can he do? The, the thing is, there is sort of a collective unconsciousness. Like, this book is out in, in the world. And so that, that's happening. The thing that this article really harps on is that there are so many plot beat similarities between a lot of films that were happening at the time. And what, what you guys are touching on there is the, Loki lets himself get kidnapped thing, uh, same as Joker lets himself get kidnapped, and uh, dude with no face um, lets in himself Skyfall. in Skyfall lets yeah. himself get kidnapped. That's a pretty noticeable one, sure. right? And uh, they go on in this article to list all these other beats. But I think it's it's the same reason that Hollywood made two asteroid films at the same time. The right. reason that Hollywood's right. currently developing two films at the same time based on the life of the Beatles manager Brian Epstein. Yeah, it, 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 it happens yeah. every year. There's something, and it's just it's this cycle. It's all people talking to one another. It's the way that the human mind in mass throw works. a little bit of the collective unconscious in there as well. Yeah, like you know, it's, 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 it's a feedback yeah. loop. Yeah, like that's, the, the the article also implies that the reason that these movies sound the same is because producers care about this book. Right. Yeah. And it's Which not, is not true. true. It's yeah. not true. You, you, uh, I hear from professional screenwriters. They're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Nobody like, ever, never even heard of this book. Yeah, yeah, yes, and, like, like, they're like, listen, I, I write my films. I take notes. I do this. And that's the end of it. Like, there's no mention of save the cat. And, and uh, Craig Mazin put it. <laughs> he says, uh, he says, listen, Who is that? Uh, he's a, he's a he's a professional screenwriter. He wrote uh, Hangovers two and three, and uh, the recent Identity Thief, and things like that. He's like, look, you you can take any of these any of these systems. This is me saying this. So I'll get to his quote. Joseph Campbell, Heroes Journey. You, Joseph Campbell, uh, Heroes Journey. Sid, Sid Field. Any yeah. of these guys, and you can you can overlay their system on any movie that's made, it's, and you're going to find similarities. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like fitting uh, Nostradamus's prophecies into world exactly. events. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah. because at, at the bottom line, here's here's what a screenplay is. Starts off, you're introduced to whoever's in it. Conflict happens. We don't know what to do. We figure out what to do. We resolve the conflict. And <laughs> through that conflict, hopefully your character has an arc. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's, in the that's, best films, the character has an arc. I'm going to write a screenplay yeah. book. It's going to be three pages long. It's going to say that. <laughs> but no, Craig Mazin goes, he, he says, listen, you don't want to read these books from screenwriters who failed and made way more money selling this book than they ever did than, being, than a being yeah. screenwriters to sell you their system, which they've never tried and doesn't work. So it's it's a waste of time. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, I'm going to make so much money in this pyramid scheme. I'm going to lose all this weight. It's yeah. true. Yeah. But no, I mean, to be fair, like, I think it's a it's a good idea to read these books because these people do have legitimate experiences. Right. Like my philosophy as wanting to be a writer working professionally was learn everything that I can and then fuck the rest. Like, just for, like set it and forget it. Like, let it stew in the brain. And if something that I think was applicable I'll, I'll I'll do it. It's like like Bruce Lee. Be like water. Just you know, you, now, you go with whatever's gonna be working for whatever idea you're working on. Now, there is a screenwriting book that Doug and I would recommend. Yeah, uh, there was, <laughs> if there was one, if there's one, it's writing movies, Make, for, making movies, making movies for, for fun, fun and profit. profit. Uh, it is the most that seems legit. <laughs> it is it is it is incredibly legit, and it's incredibly hilarious. It's a very <laughs> funny book. It's written by two guys from the state. And, and Reno 911. Okay, Reno 911, yeah. yeah. And, and, Which and ones? Thomas Lennon and Carlos something. I forgot his last name. They write this book and it's like, listen, if you're having trouble with writing your characters, 
try to pick an actor. People say don't write movies for an actor. No, do it anyway because it'll give them a distinct voice and you can change the actor later. <laughs> like, things like that, you know, just like quick tips. That is good advice. It like, is they, good advice. Like, they say try to cut out your vices like while you're writing a screenplay if you're really stressed out. We say fuck that. Yeah, you know how many vices Ernest Hemingway cut out when he was making a, an amazing story? None. It's just like, just drink all you want. If you want a guaranteed hit, become a drunkard, and they tell you how to do it. Like, it's all very funny. It's, it's, they're it's, like, listen, you have to move to L.A. if you're going to be a serious screenwriter. And because you're going to have to move to L.A., we're going to help you out. Here's the secret menu for In-N-Out Burger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a fantastic book about screenwriting, and they talk about everything. They, they'll, like, they'll be, they'll be like, about. yeah, they say, for example, go watch the movie Die Hard. Go ahead. We'll wait. And then you turn the page and it's like, that was kick-ass, wasn't it? And it's like, and then they'll go on and no, explain. No, it was Die Hard, Doug. Yeah, it was, it was fucking awesome. Yeah. It, so, no, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't kick-ass, it was Die Hard. So, yeah, but one of the things they do is um, they really harp on interaction with people in the industry. So how to take notes, how to basically corral your fury at somebody talking about your work. Yeah. It, and they said, you're going to get horrible experiences as a result. And they list their experiences. They had, Which they wrote, was horrible ones. They wrote yeah. an Ant-Man movie. Whoa. The two of them. They they wrote an Ant-Man movie and the first note giving session that they sit down with with the head producer comes in, starts giving notes about how he's like, listen, at some point, shouldn't he? No, was it Ant-Man or was it the Incredible Shrinking Man? I thought it was Ant-Man. Maybe it's the the idea of the plot was it's a guy who shrinks. And, they, and he's just like, yeah, I think at some point he needs to like maybe fight like a grasshopper or no, like, he says, I need, I just want them to interact with an animal. Animal, yeah. At any like point a, yeah, in this movie, I just want them to interact with an animal. And they, they said, and we touched our pens to our faces, went, hmm, okay, okay yeah. yeah, interesting, interesting. And then he walked off, not counting for the fact that in this movie he interacts with a panther, a grasshopper. He's <laughs> like five movies. And he clearly and had just never read the script. He never read the script. And they're like, where's that? So you're going to meet people like this. <laughs> Who are giving you notes, having never read anything that you do. But your job is to not get angry. And it, they, what, what are the other tips they say? They say, like, if you um, if, if somebody's giving you notes, keep a notepad with you and write down what they say, because they're going to change what they say if they know you're actually writing it down. <laughs> they're, 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 they're very big on just being a team player. Like, don't, exactly. don't be the asshole in the room. Get your movie made. Don't worry about that shit. Just, it was, just, it's actually yeah. a very optimistic book about screenwriting yeah. and the state of the movie industry, because, look, you, you don't have to be really that good. If you're willing to be part of the team, because everything's a team effort in the movie industry. Yeah. And uh, as you can tell, this microsode, it got beefed up a little bit by Josh and Doug's sheer willpower. Well, we, we have a lot to say. Obviously, go on for another few hours. We do go on for hours. We're going to be in the car on the way home being like, oh, I would would have stopped you if it wasn't interesting. So like, no, so good. Thanks so much to Gundam King. If you want a nerdy show microsode, all you got to do is support us. Pass our $100 mark, each successive $100 mark, you know, $100, $200, etc. That means you get to choose what we talk about for 15 minutes to start. Normally, and, and, normally. And, <laughs> and longer if, uh, if we chase a wild hare. Right now, we're going to do a little update on our currently running RPG support drive. That's a theme support drive for this month where you can choose which tabletop role-playing game we play for our next RPG one-shot. In our previous one-shot, we played Paranoia XP, and the next one is all up to you. Currently in the lead is the Firefly role-playing system. Originally, we had this slated as the Serenity or Firefly system, just to clarify that Serenity was in fact Firefly, because there was a role-playing system made after the Firefly film Serenity came out. However, an actual Firefly RPG was recently unveiled. I know what you say, well, okay, you, whoa, 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 if Serenity wasn't Firefly, then what was it? Well, contractually, that role-playing system could only pertain to things from the Firefly universe featured in the film Serenity, so it was very limited. 
This one is the whole enchilada, or at least the corner of the verse from the series, which is, you know, considerably more expansive than Serenity itself. So if we need to mix and match, we will, but we're going to be looking at using the brand new Firefly role-playing system for this. So that's in the lead with $203. Just behind that is Call of Cthulhu at $171, and third place Star Wreck at $168, followed by Dresden Files at $111. Beyond that, the number amounts are much lower. However, if you look at how quickly these systems rose to the occasion, you'll see that even with, say, Sagas Modern or World of Darkness being at $18 and $13 respectively, that can change pretty quickly. Star Wreck, no one had even heard of it until M started posting about it on the forums and got enough people interested that uh, they all chipped in. So if you've got a system that you want to see us play that's not on this list or that's at the bottom of this list, it can still happen. All you got to do is pick up the cause. Nicholas Kratzer said, just making my own small contribution to the Dresden Files. I'd love to see you guys dish out some crazy modern day magic. Some words of warning. Never trust a fairy and beware the nickel heads. Kealis said, totally voting for Serenity Firefly on this one. Keep up the good work, guys. And then later, I've decided that Serenity Firefly has to stay in the running. Here's a hundo. And you best believe that dude has thrown down big time, like a motherfucking Roosevelt. He then went on to say, looks like a few people want Call of Cthulhu. Well, maybe they should start chanting, Ia Ia Kealis Fintang, because I'm not letting them win. Another 50 to Serenity Firefly. Dude's serious, but, uh... He's just one man. There's strength in numbers. Can you take on Kaolis? There might be a war brewing. Bryce Harris said, You guys don't need an RPG to be big damn heroes. Fningli, Magulnaf, Cthulhu, Wraith, Waganagal, Fatagan. Suffice it to say, he threw down for Call of Cthulhu. And then Bryce supported us again and said, This has been stagnant too long. Let's get the ball rolling again. May the deep ones rise to break the minds of us mortals. Arceus said, I was all set to try to get some momentum behind Shadowrun. But Star Wreck sounds like way too much fun to pass up on. Live long and profit, my friends. Just keep sending in that gold-pressed latinum. Or whatever the Star Wreck equivalent is. Caitlin Kruger said, Dresden Files for the win! Matthew Shoemaker sent us a little equation. He said, Star Wreck 10, Sagas Modern 5, Dresden Files 3, Dragon Age 2, and just for a little old nerdy show, 5. So we broke it down and spread it all out. Anti-Luke said, Call of Cthulhu is the only system I'll GM. Of course I need to support it. And last, but definitely not least, Big Balla Big Bad Shadow Man said five bucks for the new Ghostbusters episode, one dollar for Call of Cthulhu, and another for Star Wreck. The RPG support drive is running all month long. If you have any questions, why you can just email info at nerdyshow.com or hit us up on Facebook or the forums. If you want to add an RPG to the list that's currently not up there, you totally can, and there's still enough time to raise some hell. And if you want to mobilize one of the so far unloved systems, then let your flag fly. For all you Dungeons & Doritos fans, it might be of interest to you that this support drive is all geared towards reaching a $900 stretch goal, whereupon we'll be sending out to all the supporters an unaired episode of Dungeons & Doritos, completely out of continuity. You can hear us talk about that in the two prior episodes. We're currently at $720 out of that $900, very, very close. And beyond that, if you guys get us to $900 before the end of the month, there are some stretch goals we can implement. But also, D&D fans... You might want to keep an eye on the website on Tuesday, because something that's long been neglected may be rearing its head again. That's all I'll say for now. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, I'm Cap. Bye, I'm Josh. Bye, I'm Doug. And taking us out, something completely unrelated, but a recent release and very cool, the Blake Robinson Synthetic Orchestra put together an album called the Chrono Trigger Symphony Volume 1, and it's a selection of music from Chrono Trigger reinterpreted in a symphonic style as though there was, say, a Chrono Trigger film. 
So the track that Hex has selected for you is simply titled The Chrono Trigger Symphony, merging many themes and inviting you into the world of Chrono Trigger. This is Bartholomew Elfgar Gleeman. Thanks for listening to Nerdy Show. Nerdy Show is made possible by a comic shop, Nerdapalooza, and the generous support of listeners like you. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the Nerdy Show Network alive by telling a friend, rating and reviewing us on the iTunes, or making a contribution to our monthly support drive. Or to your favorite Gleeman. Any size contribution gets you exclusive Nerdy Show audio and images and lets you participate in our monthly support drives. Just go to nerdyshow.com slash support to chip in. For more episodes of Nerdy Show, Dungeons and Doritos, as well as other fine programming, community forums, videos, articles, and more, head on over to nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show Network podcasts via the iTunes Store. And for the latest news, follow us on all your favorite social networks. Tune in via Crystal. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.